Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. We've come to worship you, to hear from you, to connect with one another, and any other number of reasons that we might be thinking about. We ask that you be with us. May you meet us here. May the spirit that dwells within us speak to us today. And may you help us respond to the word that you're speaking. We ask this all in your son's name who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. So last week uh, was an example of one of the hard things about being a pastor. And so maybe you remember the sermon. Um, And if you don't, that's all right. And if you weren't here, it will be online uh, sometime this next week. And you can listen if you're interested. But uh, the sermon was about um, the need to repent. And I didn't choose the readings. Uh, The way that we do our readings as we follow the lectionary. So it's the same reading in churches all across the world. Um, and it's one of those things where as a pastor, you're forced to sometimes preach on things that you don't like to preach on. But the one thing that I know that I'll never do is not preach what I believe is what the Bible is telling us and challenging us. So when there's a sermon like that, it's My responsibility to communicate what I believe is what the Word of God says, which makes it hard because sometimes that's not a fun thing to communicate to anyone, and none of us want to hear it. But also, the thing about being a pastor is, even though you have the Sundays like last week, there's also Sundays like this week. This sermon and this passage that we're going to read takes what we heard last week and puts it into a whole new light. And this is what this passage wants us to hear. It's God wants us to come home. God wants us to come home. So even though last week was all about repentance and the need for all people to repent, this week is about God wants us to come home. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have the Pew Bible right in front of you, because everyone has one of those, take it out. Today's passage is Luke chapter... 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and then jump down and start in verse 11. So take out your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and we will take a look. Um, So the Pew Bible, that is going to be page number 908. If you follow along, it'll be a lot easier this week. So this is how Luke opens chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Before we look at the parable, we're going to stop here. So in this passage, we don't know the exact setting. We know that Jesus is with sinners and tax collectors. And we know that the religious leaders who were around him do not approve of this company. And it seems to suggest that Jesus might have been eating, or at times he does eat with sinners and tax collectors because of what the the religious leaders say. 
So the reason that tax collectors were so disliked by people in, in Jerusalem was because they represented the enemy. They represented Rome because they collected taxes for the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire's taxes were extremely crippling for people. So we complain about our taxes, and it's nothing compared to what people had to pay in the Roman Empire, specifically conquered nations like Jerusalem. So these people who were fellow Israelites had, in, in effect, gone to the enemy to collect taxes. And then on top of that, usually tax collectors would steal and lie and collect more money than was required and pocket it for themselves. So they were rich, they were slimy, people didn't like them. So it was not good company for religious people to be with tax collectors and sinners. And it was very, very bad for you to eat with them. Because when you eat with people, it means that in some ways you accept them. Which means that you approve of their lifestyle. At least that's how the Pharisees understood it. So Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners meant that, in their opinion, he approved of their lifestyle. So here's a question for us today as we start. Who are the sinners in our world? And are there people that we want to befriend or people that we want to avoid? And what does our culture and even our church culture, not just our congregation, but the church culture in our area, tell us about who people are that we should not associate with? And then let's think about what Jesus says in this passage. All right, so we don't read chapters or verses 4 through 10. Now, if we were to read these, we would see that Jesus responds to what the Pharisees are, are uh, saying with three parables. The first two we don't look at, and the third is the one we're going to look at here in a minute. So those first two are very similar. The one is a lost sheep that is found by the shepherd. The shepherd leaves 99 sheep to find the one that's lost. And the second is a woman who has 10 coins that she loses one in her house. And she turns the house over looking for that one coin. And in both cases, when those, the one sheep and the one coin is found, they throw a huge party. And what Jesus is telling the tax or the religious leaders in the day is he's saying God looks for the one and then celebrates when he finds them. The reason he eats with tax collectors and sinners is because God is looking for his lost people to bring them home. And then Jesus tells a third parable, and this is the one we're going to look at today, and this is one we all know, and it starts in verse 11. This is how it starts. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. And he began, or in, uh, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and went to his father. All right, we're going to stop at that spot, and we're going to assess this parable. We've all heard it, I think. For most of us, if you've been in church for part of your life, you've heard this parable. But there's things about it that we might not recognize. First, so the son is the younger son, so that means he probably would have got a third of his father's inheritance, which would have most likely been land. So it was common in those days for fathers before they died to divide up the inheritance. So a son would have known what they're going to receive, but it was not at all common or wise to actually give over control of that land to the heirs until after you died. The father could keep his land and earn the income off of it until it was time, until he died, and then that's when his heirs would receive the inheritance. So what this father does in the eyes of Jesus' audience is extremely foolish. He gives a son his inheritance before his death. He loses part of his own income, and he, is, he gives his son something that most people would think, well, if he's asking for it, he's disrespecting you. He most likely isn't going to be very wise with it. But the father gives it to him. And so the son takes it, and he basically what he does is he goes to Las Vegas. All right, think about everything that happens in Las Vegas. I've never been there. I've only heard stories. And, and the worst part and the darkest parts of Las Vegas, this is the kind of thing the son is using the wealth for. And then it's gone. And because he does that... No one in the culture, whether you were a Roman or a Greek, so these aren't Jewish people that have like a Christian Jewish system of morals, even they would say, this son is extremely foolish. He deserves no help because he has squandered his father's inheritance. And the same with the Jewish people. They would have said, we have no obligation to help you. Because you're in your situation because of your foolishness. And this even means employment. We're not talking about just giving someone money. Even employing this person would have been viewed as helping him and he did not deserve help. So the son is in this situation and he says, I have no other option but to return home. And he's going to have to return home having disrespected his father and then also humiliated his father because of what he had done. But he has no other choice. So he goes home. And now this is how he's received. Continuing in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So while the father had no obligation to receive his son back and I mean, he was foolish enough to give him the inheritance. He would have been even more foolish in the eyes of his contemporary people to receive the son back. But the son is coming back, and he's like, I don't want to be a son. I just want to be a servant. But what the father does is he sees his son coming, 
and he runs to greet him. Not something that Jewish men did, especially elderly Jewish men. But the, son, the father is so excited to see his son, he has to go greet him. And then he tells his servants to bring the best robe. The best robe in the house would have belonged to the father. Only a son is worthy to wear a robe belonging to the father. And then he gives him a ring. Now this isn't just any ring. This is probably a signet ring. So if you know what a signet ring is, it bears the family seal. It would have been used as a signature. Only a son can have the signet ring of the family. And then he gives him sandals. Only sons wear sandals. Servants did not wear sandals. The father receives the son back as a son, regardless of what he has done. Again, Jesus is telling these Jewish leaders, God wants to receive his lost sheep. He wants to find his lost coin. He wants his creatures, his people, his creation, his sons and daughters to come home. God wants us to come home. No matter what we've done, he wants us to come home. This is important. Last week in the sermon, you might have left feeling extremely guilty. You might have felt like you wanted to crawl into a hole and never come back. You might have thought about the things that you have done in your past that you don't want to think about. The things that are inside of us that we don't ever let see the light of day. The things we've not maybe told anyone ever. Things that have happened to us that we have done, but also things that someone else might have done to us that we have no control over. And we push those things down and ignore them. But God wants us to come home. It doesn't matter what we've done or what's been done to us. He wants us to come home. But the question is, what happens when we come home? Well, you heard... uh, Exodus, or not Exodus, but Joshua read earlier. And Joshua, what's happening in that passage in Joshua is that the Israelite people who have been enslaved for 400 years are finally brought home to the land that God had promised them. He brings them home. And what he says to them in verse 9 of chapter 5 of Joshua is this. He says, Today I have rolled away the approach of Egypt from you. Now when I read this this week, I was like, well, what does a reproach mean? But I looked into it a little bit more, and this, this is what I think it should actually say. This is a better translation. This day I have rolled away the shame of Egypt from upon you. God, God brought Israel home, and he rolled away their shame. Sin brings shame in our life. Sin that we've done and also sin that the people have done to us. It brings shame. If we don't want to tell people about it, it's because it brings us shame. Now think about it. If you were a Jew who was in Israel or in uh, Egypt as a slave, what kind of things were happening to you? You didn't own your body. You didn't have control over your own body. Imagine the things that they were forced to do, the dignity that they lost, the abuse and exploitation they experienced, the worst kinds of exploitation as a slave. So imagine the shame that brings in your life. 
You are not worthy to be human because you've been owned. But God says, I've brought you home, and I've rolled away your shame. God wants us to come home. So the shame that you might have found and thought about last week, God wants to set you free from it. God wants us to come home. But what's important is this doesn't mean that we don't have to do the work when it comes to repenting from our past sin. We have to face those things. We have to talk about them. We have to bring them to light. Everything God will bring us through. He wants us to come home. And when we go home, there's freedom. But how do we know there's freedom? What does this freedom look like? It's a new world where sin is not welcome. And this place is talked about as having a river that runs through the middle of it that heals the nations. Now that's an imagery, but the place that we're going to is a place where there's no shame and sin and death and where healing happens. Now there's a reading always with the lectionary that we never read. It's from... Uh, one of the other letters in the New Testament, usually one of Paul's writings or one of the other epistles, as they're called, which are just letters. And this is uh, from the reading today that we didn't read from uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're going to just look at a couple of verses from it. So chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians 17 through 19, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and gave, or through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. When we come home to God, we enter the new creation. We enter the world that is coming, the world when there's no sin, where there's no death. The center of the gospel is about reconciliation. And what that means is simply bringing people back together. God is about bringing people back together. He's about bringing us back together with him. He's about reconciling marriages. He's about reconciling families. He's about reconciling friendships. He's about bringing nations together in people groups. People that hate each other the most. God is about bringing people back together. And when we come home to God and he frees us from our shame, he sets us free to live in heaven on earth. And now what I mean by that is not thinking about heaven as a place where we go in the clouds, but thinking about the place where God's reign and rule is realized. A place where there's no shame because reconciliation has come a place where there's no sin and where people are reconnected with one another. This is the place that we're going to. And we get to live in that place here. So this community, this church, should be a place where reconciliation happens. A place where broken relationships are restored. Because that's what God's about. He wants us to come home. But here's the hardest part about all this. And we haven't read the rest of the parable. Because in the parable of the lost son, there's actually two sons. 
One son who runs from the father and takes all of his inheritance. And then there's a son who doesn't leave. And this is what the son who doesn't leave, this is what happens. In 25, Luke 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your father has come, or your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Unlike the older, unlike the father, the older brother is not happy his son or his brother comes home. And he sees that his father has killed the fattened calf to celebrate. Now, you don't just fatten a calf for any reason. You fatten a calf when you're planning a feast. So there's a chance, there's a chance now, there's no way to know this for sure, but there's a chance the, cat, the calf is being fattened for this older brother's coming wedding. Or the father was anticipating the wedding and preparing for it. But it was such an occasion that the younger son had come home that the fattened calf couldn't wait. It needed to be used to celebrate. But the older son can't accept that his brother has come home. So remember, this story is geared and pointed towards the religious leaders, the people in Jesus' day who didn't want to see people who were sinners connected with religious people. And Jesus wants them to understand that God is in the business of bringing people home to him. And then what Jesus says to, the old, to these people, to these religious leaders, is he says, are you like the older brother? Do you not want these people to come home? Where are we in the story? Now, there's a chance that we can be both people. We can be the son who needs to come home, but then are we okay seeing other people in our lives come home too who we might not really appreciate? People who we don't want to see reconciled with us and with other people. Not only does God want us to come home, he wants all of his lost sheep to come home. So the people who have hurt you in life most, they probably need to come home too. And there's a good chance that part of them coming home is you welcoming them and you reconciling that relationship, you reconnecting with those people who have hurt you. Because God is in the business of bringing people back together. But he wants us to come home, but when we come home, we have to face our shame, but he sets us free from it 
to live on heaven in heaven or live from heaven on earth. But to do that, we have to face the people who need to come home too. And even if those people don't want reconciliation, even if they don't want to be reconnected, it's our responsibility, I think, in our healing process to address and connect with those people and free ourselves from them. Free ourselves from the pain they've caused us, even if they do not want to reciprocate or return that forgiveness. It's not an easy thing. But when we move through that, we're set free. God wants us to come home. Central to this message is the word reconciliation, which, like I said, is a church word that no one understands. But reconciliation just simply means reconnection, restored relationships. So the person in your life who you most don't want to talk to is probably the place that you might need to start. But God wants us to come home. Do that first. If you're not home, if you're not sure where you're at in your life, God wants to reconcile first his relationship with you. And then he wants to help you work through your life to remove that shame and to bring you into the promised land where you are liberated from your past sin and set free to live from heaven on earth. God wants us to come home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown to all of your people as you wait for us to return, as you search for us to set us free from sin and guilt and shame so that we can live as your people on the world. Lord, I ask you to be with the people here today who, who know that they've got some work to do in their lives, that they want to come home, that you're working on them. I ask that you would bring them closer. Give them the courage to face the things in their life that they don't want to look at. Take away their shame and guilt and set them free. Be with those of us who have been home, those of us who are on the inside looking out. And may we welcome the people who are coming, even if they've hurt us in the past. And it's hard for us to see them coming back. May we be your partners in this work. May we pray for and be with people and show them and tell them about the good news of the gospel. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.